straight from the heart of La La Land, this is the Cutter Calloway Podcast, a one-stop shop for all things faith and culture. I'm your host, Cutter Calloway, and I'm inviting you to join me on a journey of theological exploration and discovery. Today I'm talking with John Chester about his new documentary film, The Biggest Little Farm. I'm going to ask you some questions in hopefully a non-traditional format for a couple reasons. Uh, number one, I, <laughs> driving home last night, heard uh, that Terry Gross did a lead-in saying, we're about to talk to John and Molly Chester. Um, and I was like, I'm not going to compete with Terry Gross. She's going to ask amazing <laughs> questions, right? Um, and uh, secondly, uh, when I came out uh, to the farm a couple weeks ago, uh, you know, Molly was my sort of tour guide and, and took us around. Um, and sort of on a whim, my uh, oldest daughter is really um, interested uh, fr- from school and whatnot in, in terms of regenerative farming. And so I was like, oh, give me some questions. I'll ask them. And so she, <laughs> my daughter, uh, eight-year-old, texted me a handful of questions. And I asked one just for fun of Molly. And it turned out to be this um, really pr- – she had a really profound answer. And I realized it was a really insightful question. Um, and the reason I bring it up is because um, – I think for me, at least generationally, um, in terms of what you're proposing here, the way that you've um, uh, developed Apricot Lane and, and what you've got in your documentary, is something that I um, have been disconnected from. And I don't even know if I have the right questions to ask, much less <laughs> um, know how to answer them. And so I thought, I'm going to just ask you three questions from my daughter and see if, in fact, um, one, you're as insightful as your wife, um, oh, and <laughs> and two, uh, see if that's a, a helpful way into it. So, um, does that are, are the terms of of that uh, interview agreeable to you? Yes. Okay. I great. am willing to accept the challenge. Okay. Wonderful. Wonderful. <laughs> um, all right. So, so first question is this coming from uh, Cutter's daughter, eight eight years old, and that is this. What do you love so much about dirt? What I love about dirt, also known as soil, more importantly known as soil, is that it is the only alchemizer of death and decay back into life that we will ever know. Hmm. It literally takes everything that we know and turns it back into the nutrients and minerals that feed all life that we know. Hmm. Now, as I was out there, I, I think I was struck um, by your, uh, what do you call the big crate filled with dirt and uh, earthworms? Um, oh, oh, the, the verma, vermicompost. Bin. Yes, yeah. the vermicompost. And and I remember sitting there, I was really struck by this moment where you, you kind of become an evangelist for soil, <laughs> um, you know, holding up uh, these, these earthworms and, and talking in, in, in these terms. Um, and again, as someone that's not necessarily connected to farming as as a way of producing my own food, um, on the one hand, I go, oh, well, yeah, that makes total sense. And then the next question was, why isn't that the case for everybody? Um, so so what is it that um, that that compels you to be so concerned about this, what's going on with the, the, the microorganisms and soil? Um, that is different than farming writ large in America? Well, I mean, that's a big question. I think for me, it didn't start that I, I woke up one morning and said, soil is the most important thing. We all need to be concerned about soil. 
it was it was a journey of trying to understand how to grow food with incredible flavor and great levels of nutrient density while at the same time restoring wildlife habitat in a way that would actually collaborate with farming and actually help our farming. Hmm. And then it all sort of became apparent that the soil is the starting point of everything. Hmm. And if you aren't making decisions that regenerate the soil, that nothing will be healthy. No life will, you know, all, no life will find its own independence, you know, and soil provides an ability for all life around us to become more independent and less codependent hmm. in the very nature that it is integrated. Um, let me try to say that in a more simple way. If, if the soil's not healthy, then nothing is able to sort of find its own way through adversity. Hmm. And that became, I mean, that was really what I think for me, what, you know, led me down this path that if I don't understand how soil works, then I'll never understand how to, how to build this farm. Um, and, and, and another thing too, is that, you know, it is, it is nearly a reflection of our gut microbiome. And if you have ever been sick or fought any kind of, you know, health issue and then related it to the food or a deficiency within your gut microbiome, then you begin to have an intuitive understanding for how soil works, hmm. which is quite profound because yeah. you can begin to see soil in a more almost four-dimensional way. Huh. That's interesting. So it, it is literally sort of a gut-level instinct <laughs> moving. It is in the gut direction. of the it's yeah. the gut of the earth, yeah. you know. And, yeah. and if the gut of the earth is healthy, then the immune system of the yeah. planet is healthy, wow. you know. And the immune system is really the ecosystem. The ecosystem is a self-regulating system that balances and balances. So next question that uh, comes up from what you just said is from my daughter again. And it's the same one that I asked Molly on the tour, and she gave a wonderful response. So no pressure, but here we go. Oh, geez. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and that is, uh, in light of what you're just saying in terms of like interdependence and everything. How can you tell the difference between grass and a weed? Well, there's really no such thing as a weed. I mean, a weed is just a term given to a plant that's growing someplace where we don't want it to grow. The, the, the real question is, what can we learn from the plant that we're calling a weed? Because it's growing for a reason. Everything that's growing on soil that's been damaged is trying to help surface a nutrient, a vital nutrient that the plants, that the soil needs in order to recover. And so it may take thousands of years for, you know, the ecosystem to repair dirt. And it goes through these successions of sort of weeds that come up and do these certain jobs that slowly build that soil back. And so a lot of times what we call a weed is an indication of a health need of that soil. And so it helps us to understand how we can maybe advance the pace of that repair. So I don't see weeds. I see, I see indications of the need of the soil. Hmm. Yeah, I think that was my sort of aha moment. Uh, good job, good job. That was a great answer. Um, <laughs> Molly said something uh, strikingly similar, and that's when I go, "Oh wow!" I think, I think both my daughter and and and, and you and Molly are revealing to me something that. Um, is is beyond simply the 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 question of farming and and how we source our food, 
um, but kind of gets into sort of the the kind of late modern society we live in that labels things, frames things in ways that um, are are dictating from the start how we respond. Um, and right. so to name it as a weed, a plant as a weed is, is, to, is to dictate what you're going to do. Um, and if you, if you name it differently, if you call it something differently, all of a sudden your relationship to it changes. And, and so, absolutely, yeah. And I, I just thought that was really interesting. And it is also something yeah. else you said about, um, yeah. your, uh, concern with this other label, which is, um, the difference between sustainable farming um, and what you're terming regenerative. Could you say a little bit about that, of why you, you're concerned with why we call it sustainable or what we mean when we say that and why you prefer the term regenerative? Well, I mean, any and all terms used to describe a farming method, even regenerative, which is the new buzzword yeah. that I have the most hope for, but any of those terms can be taken and repurposed and used in a way that may not be in line with truly... Um, healthy restorative practices. Like the word sustainability, there's not a sustainable certification that I know of where you can then use the word because you're practicing methods in a way that are truly sustainable. And also the idea of the word sustainability, regardless of its textbook, you know, definition, the idea that people think when they hear that word is that, oh, well, these methods will allow us to live forever. Hmm. And the truth is, is that there are very few, if any, forms of agriculture that are truly sustainable. So until we find those forms, what we need to be focused on as a farming culture is regeneration. That as we're farming the land, we need to be focused also on regenerating it, putting back into it, you know, so that the future generations have something to build towards a sustainable future on soil. They can't do that without soil, you know, in the last 260 years, the entire uh, industrial revolution of the human species, we've degraded at least one third of our topsoils. Hmm. And we've done that unconsciously. Yeah. And what do we expect our kids to do with no topsoil? Are they going to ship in food from Mars? You know? So regeneration is really a lens with which to view farming. Hmm. Whereas sustainable, to me, confuses us and creates more complacency around a term that isn't very accountable. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it was uh, interesting to to see not only your concern about it, like uh, not just sustaining the the farm itself, the the produce or the land, but then the the economics of it. Is it economically sustainable? Is it um, you know uh, ethically sustainable? So forth and so on. So um, one thing that was really interesting. Again, uh, my daughter being really interested in this because of school, because of some of the other media she's consuming. Um, one day, and this was a few years ago, so I think maybe she's five or six, and she comes up and she's like, uh, see you, Dad. She has her backpack, and she goes, I'm going to go on a biodiversity scavenger hunt. And I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> and, I, I'm, you know, it's one of those, what is my five-year-old even talking about? Um, and she had learned this on PBS Kids or something like that. Um, I love your daughter. She's I know. Fantastic. I, she is. She's going to change the world. Oh, I, she really will. And that's that's what's so interesting of of me as an adult saying, I need to learn from you because I really don't have, I don't, I don't know what kind of things to even ask, right? Um, and so her question is this. If I went on a biodiversity scavenger hunt at your farm, what would I find and why? Oh my gosh. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you that in one sentence. But what you'll find in general is a great diversity of species that you wouldn't find in normal 
on any other farm, um, especially a farm that is utilizing chemicals as a way to control nature. Because even though those chemicals may be designed to eradicate a particular pest, there's so much collateral damage from the use of those chemicals. And by collateral damage, I mean, you know, the innocent hummingbird or the bee or the ladybug that aren't a part of the problem but are part of the solution are also killed oftentimes with the use of these broad spectrum pesticides, mm. right? So what you're going to see is incredible diversity of life that we understand the purpose of and, and many of which we don't understand the purpose of. And I think that's what's so amazing is that sometimes I'll look and see, oh, what is this bug and not really know what it is for a couple of years. And then one day I pick up, you know, the book and start researching it and realize, oh, this thing is actually eating this other pest that we've had here. Hmm. And I'm seeing those numbers increase because those pest numbers are increased. And it's really quite profound to start to look around at the biodiversity and question what's what is the role of all this stuff, you know? So, again, I hope that sort of answers the question. Yeah, it's good. And it, it reminds me of um, uh, the scene where uh, you've you've got all the snails, uh, uh, you know, kind of consuming your whole farm. Um, and then you go, oh, well, let's let's release the ducks. Um, and and you see this really interesting in, in the film, I think. Now, again, as a viewer, it it becomes like, oh, yeah, OK, that was a great solution. Um, it doesn't necessarily in, you know, in, in a 90 minute film. Um, sort of stretch out how long it is you're dealing with that, right? That that each new solution presents another difficulty or problem, in part revealing that um, th- that it's the success of that uh, approach of, of the sort of biodiversity that's actually um, inviting new and different species in, and at the same time you have to deal with this problem. And and it struck me that um, at one point Molly kind of stops as you guys are picking up snails and, and just says, this feels overwhelming. Um, and I wonder what, you know, on this side of the story um, that, you know, as a, as a storyteller, you had to kind of um, bring it to an end, but it's not ended, you know, it's not concluded. What, what still feels overwhelming to you as you, as you think through the next, let's say, seven or eight years of your, of your farm? Well, you know, there's a, there's a great sense of humility that comes from knowing, knowing this, I think, one truth after eight years. And, and that is that the thing I know for sure is that I know nothing for sure, (laughs) because no solution here is forever, you know, and there's something also very comforting about that, that like, Mm. you know, we're not supposed to know the thing that solves everything forever. Mm. We're supposed to just have this lens with which to view all these problems as opportunities for deeper collaboration. Right. And that deeper collaboration is going to help us find more long lasting effects of, uh, or, or solutions. So I, I don't know if I, it's weird. I've become, I've, I've sort of surrendered to the imperfectness of the process. Um, I don't know if I feel overwhelmed right now about the farm. I think what feels overwhelming is the process of launching a film while trying to farm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, in the way the farm feels more simple, which is cr- a crazy thought, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, I, I, I don't know. Oh, that's it's a really interesting stump me. I, I don't know what feels overwhelming. I mean, there's so many problems, but not one of them feels like it's impossible. Yeah. Well, it makes me think, I mean, like part of what I appreciate about the film, about you all's story, um, and then, you know, sort of extrapolate to 
this approach to, to farming and, and maybe just life in general um, is, I mean, there's a, a number of points where you're sort of reflecting on, okay, I need to acknowledge that I'm not in control of this. Um, I need to acknowledge that part of mm. that sense of control is this kind of uh, idealism that sometimes we have that even sort of yeah. we have to sacrifice and submit to the realities. Um, and then even your notion of, you know, sustainable versus regenerative, even sustainability kind of smacks of a a sense of of controlling the land, right? Like we're gonna we are gonna exert our influence over it so that it sustains itself, right? Um, yeah. As if we could we are the agents of that, as opposed to collaborating, like you're saying, a deeper collaboration with the land. So at the at the very end, um, I think it's near the end. You kind of have this this comment. Um, you, you say something like, "When I look at all that, what you're just describing this this deeper sense of collaboration, the sense of of the sort of interdependency of all of life in this ecosystem." Um, you go, "When I look at it like that, it's perfect." Now, I work at a seminary, <laughs> and I'm the co-director of a thing called Real Spirituality. Um, mm. So a lot of what we do is ask the question of, of in terms of like film and cinema and, and, and sort of audiovisual media in general, what, in what ways are these sort of tapping into sort of deeper spiritual impulses, right? Um, and when you said it's perfect, it just reminds me a bit of um, in, in the, the, the Hebrew Bible, uh, when, when God creates the world, uh, God ends by saying it is good. Um, and tov is this word. So it's both, it's both a good and a beautiful, it, it, it verges on the sort of perfect, like it's, it's fitting, um, is essentially what the word means. So I wondered, is, is there a sense, is it fair to say that you are kind of entering into and proposing in this film, a, a spiritual connection to the land? Um, and if so, how would you, how would you describe that kind of spiritual connection to the land? Well, I, I don't think there was a, um, you know, a plan to, to, to code it in that way. What I love about that, though, is that you found the similarities, you know, that there is eternal life. Um, you know, that if you're saying that if you die on this piece of soil and that soil then, you know, essentially alchemizes the components of your physical being into nutrients that ultimately feed future life, well, then that it's easy to say, biologically speaking, that you go on to live forever huh. in everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of parallels just in that sentence to any and all religions. Mm -hmm. And I love that people see that. But the thing that's kind of remarkable, and I'm sure you would agree, is that that we would ever see religion and God separate from nature mm -hmm. that it, what if all of the stories that were being told about a God were actually stories that were telling us about nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's I really know. interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and it, and if you, you know, look at some of the great sort of religious narratives, um, they often, I mean, sometimes they're about like people groups and politics and things like that. But, uh, and many times it is, uh, that people's relationship to the land, right? That, that, um, battles are waged over land. Um, there's great, mm. there's great flood stories, um, mm. where the, the land is, is, is exactly what you're describing. It's in control, not, <laughs> not the people. And how do we, how do we navigate that sort of reality, um, is, is really sort of a, a, 
a through line, um, not only in sort of a Judeo-Christian concept, but in most mm. other sort of religious traditions. So I think I think you're right, that there's a sense in which it's humans confronting the the other in creation, right, in the created order. Um, and, and that's, I think, how I would even describe just spirituality, broadly speaking, right, that it's this um, interdependent connection we've got to each other um, and to this world that we inhabit. Um, one... Love that. Yeah, uh, uh, love that. Another thing that you had said that I, th- I found really compelling, uh, maybe you can riff on a little bit, is, uh, and this is in response to, again, you're kind of encountering these uh, different circumstances and scenarios that you hadn't accounted for or planned for or didn't even know existed um, and trying to respond. And, you know, now you're, you're seven, eight years into it. What? How far into this are you? We're over over eight, eight. years okay. now. Yeah. So now you're getting to be, you know, proficient, and now you're even saying yeah, this is really wonderful to feel like it feels more simple than <laughs> than doing a, a documentary. Um, but in there, uh, you'd said uh, observation followed by creativity is becoming your greatest ally. Um, is that? I mean, again, I know you're speaking about specifically the the, the farm and the, the the process that you're going through um, in terms of cultivating the land. Um, are you also sort of signaling to us, the audience and others, um, a, a sort of broader notion toward life? That just seems like a really good mantra <laughs> for life. It is. Um, it did, it, does it apply beyond farming? Oh, my gosh. Everything in farming, especially when you're farming in a way that you're acknowledging a dependency upon something with which you cannot control is a metaphor for human existence. Hmm. And the thing that's not in the film that I wish had been is that it's observation followed by creativity, followed by humility. Because when it fails, and it surely will, regardless of how well you've observed or how well you've created around it, when it fails, humility is the admission that you didn't do it right, you didn't get it right, you maybe weren't enough. And the only choice you have is to repeat observation, creativity, humility, repeat. Hmm. Hmm. And the sooner you can get to the humility part of it, I find for me, it's allowed me a clear mind with which to see a solution that I didn't see the first time I tried. But if I hold on to it as my ego is the solver of the problem, um, it takes a lot longer to fix it more deeply, you know? And so I think it absolutely is. I mean, that's why one of the reasons I made the film, you know, uh, was because of the, to me, the profound transformative ways with which I viewed the whole world after spending time here farming in this way. You know, everything seemed different. Life seemed actually safer, which I never expected to find. Huh. That's a, a really fitting and beautiful <laughs> way to uh, uh, end this, I think. I, that's a... Um... Again, it's 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 both shocking, but it's shocking in that it shouldn't be surprising, right? That um, my experience of going out to your farm was was similar. I mean, I was only there for a few hours, and it's really amazing how transformative. Just going, oh, we are disconnected in many ways that um, are are damaging to ourselves and to each other. Um, and a simple few hours spending time thinking about, talking about, hearing from someone like you. Um, tell their story is really, I, I mean, I would, I would classify it as transformative. Um, and, and so I really appreciated you taking time to, to give me a tour, um, and to, uh, speak with uh, me today about your film. Uh, it comes out on May 10th 
And uh, where where can people see it? Well, it's going to be um, rolling out through, uh, throughout the country um, uh, on May, starting May 10th. Um, and each week they'll add additional cities. Um, you can look at uh, thebiggestlittlefarmmovie.com. Um, and type in your zip code and find a theater near you over the next uh, couple of weeks. Fantastic. Well, um, I encourage everyone to go see it. Uh, and that doesn't mean you shouldn't go uh, see Avengers, uh, but it does mean you should also go <laughs> <laughs> and see The Biggest Little Farm. Uh, and uh, thanks a bunch, uh, John. And uh, you did uh, an admirable job, not only answering <laughs> my daughter's questions, but uh, living up to uh, your other, other half, uh, Molly, as well. So. I'm glad. I, I don't expect a surpasser, but I hope I got close. <laughs> Great. Hey, thanks so All much. Right. Yeah, thank you so much. Right. You've been listening to the Cutter Calloway Podcast. Find past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, or CutterCalloway.com. For those of you with social media savvy, my handle is at Cutter Calloway. Thanks again to John and to his wife and co-founder of Apricot Lane Farms, Molly Chester, for being such great hosts while I was out on their land.